Hey, y'all. It's Akemini. And it's Christina. From Truth's Table. And you all have been asking us ways that you can actually partner and support Truth's Table. And we have now created a Patreon. Hey, this is the deal. We need your help. We need your resources to make this happen. Go on over to patreon.com slash truthstable and partner with this work. Welcome to Truth's Table, Midwives of Culture for Grace and Truth. I'm McKemini, and it's just me at the table because it is that time of the season uh, where we are having a Truth's Table classroom. As we've told y'all, you know, this is our third season, and from time to time, we, the women of Truth's Table, uh, like to share uh, what we do in our own individual ministries. As you know, all three of us are anti-racist, we're speakers, we're teachers, um, and sometimes we're called on to uh, preach. And so I had the privilege and the opportunity to preach at City Point Church in Chicago uh, last month in June 2019. And um, they actually had their inaugural Juneteenth Celebration Sunday. And so I had the honor of preparing a sermon around that theme. And so the title of the sermon is Jesus is Our Juneteenth. And just for some of y'all who may not know what Juneteenth is, although you should, Juneteenth is the commemoration and celebration of the end of slavery. Uh, it This uh, order or this, this um, notice actually came two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. So this is um, an announcement that was made to the last group of enslaved Black people or Africans in Galveston, Texas. So that truly is our Independence Day, and that's the one that ought to be recognized. So I had the privilege of uh, preaching this word. Jesus is our Juneteenth. I really hope it blesses you. Get your Bibles out. Uh, the text is from Genesis 16, verses 1 through 16. Jesus is our Juneteenth. Genesis 16, verses 1 through 16. I hope that the sermon um, encourages you. I hope it convicts you of sin and convinces you of righteousness. And I just hope that you see um, just new um new realities in the text that you perhaps had not seen before. So God bless, and I'll see you at the table. Bye. What's up, City Point? Look at y'all looking all fly with your, with your woke casual and your Pan-African sheep. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, today is Juneteenth Sunday, of course, and I'm so excited about today. I've been looking forward to it. This is the first time we've celebrated Juneteenth as a church, uh, and this will be an annual tradition here at City Point. Uh, for those that don't know, Juneteenth is a celebration of the liberation of black people in this country. Uh, and so it is, on a, it is on June the 19th that we stop to celebrate the sacrifices of our ancestors, not who gained freedom, but who took their freedom. Amen? Amen. Freedom ain't something that, that somebody can give to you. Freedom is something that you have to demand for yourself. Uh, I'm excited that we have a guest speaker with us today, a phenomenal sister that's going to bring the word to us. She's a public theologian. Her name is Akimini Uwan. She got her Master of Divinity degree in 2016 from Westminster Theological Seminary in Philly. Um, she is the co-host of the Truth's Table podcast. 
Uh, Christianity Today named her among the 10 new or lesser known female theologians worth knowing in 2018. Her writings have been published in the Huffington Post Black Voices, Christianity Today, and her insights have been quoted by CNN, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the New Yorker, among other publications. She's passionate about sound theology and, fierce, and has a fierce commitment to biblical orthodoxy and its implications for issues pertaining to racial injustice, anti-black racism, and white supremacy. Uh, and it's not listed on her biography, but she's just all around dope. So I want y'all to stand to your feet and welcome to the dopest church on the planet. Welcome, Akimini Umar. And 
the Confederate soldiers unleashed violent threats and lynchings in order to try to re-enslave our people. And although we are not where we once were, the tension of oppression in light of liberation is still a present reality for us. And this is what it looks like for us right now, right? Just this past week, June 17th, a couple days before Juneteenth, it marked the fourth year since a white supremacist joined a Bible study, killing nine men and women of God, right, in cold blood at Mother Emanuel Amy Church in, in, South, in Charleston, South Carolina. And I'm going to say their names because their lives matter. Reverend Clementa Pinkney, Cynthia Hurd, Reverend Sharonda Coleman Singleton, Taiwanda Sanders, Ethel Lance, Susie Jackson, the Payne Middleton Doctor, Reverend Daniel Simmons, and Myra Thompson. That's tension, y'all. Police officers killing our people with impunity. Tension. Many of our country's public schools still remain segregated and unequal. Tension. Mass incarcerations, disproportionate impact on black men and women. Tension. In his latest essay for The Atlantic, Ibrahim uh, Kennedy, the title of the essay was There Is No Middle Ground on Reparations. Ibrahim X. Kennedy said this, for, and I'm quoting, for every $100 of wealth that white families hold, black families hold just $5. One in four black folks has zero or negative wealth, in contrast to one in, one in 10 white households. End quote. That's tension, y'all. So yeah, Juneteenth, they hit a little different for me this year. And so what shall we say to these things? To whom can we make our appeal? To Jesus, of course. Um, the title of the sermon is Jesus is Our Juneteenth, okay? Jesus is Our Juneteenth. But before we get to Jesus, we are going to sit at the feet of a sister who knows something about the tension of liberation in light, uh, the attention of oppression in light of liberation. The Holy Spirit actually led me to Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 16, so that we can learn from our African ancestor and matriarch in the faith, Hagar, who was, in, who was an enslaved woman herself. Okay, so we are in Genesis 16, verses 1 through 16. I'm going to be reading from the NIV, all right? So I'm going to start. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family with her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years. Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with her and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abraham, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. 
You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. He's going to be a baby kid, y'all. <laughs> His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well is called Bir Lahai or Lahai. It is still there between Kadesh and Barad. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. This is the word of God for the people of God. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of the word. So in this message, first sermon, we will learn three things, maybe a little bit more than three, three points. We will learn that sin is irrational. We will learn that sin is, has a communal impact. Lastly, we will learn that Jesus is our Juneteenth, all right? Which is the title of the sermon. So point number one, sin is irrational. I'm gonna read verses one through two. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had born him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So here's the context and the background of this story. So in Genesis 15, God promised Abram that he would have a son, a promised son, and um, his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. But now, in chapter 16, one chapter, y'all, one chapter, we see a gap, right, between God's promise to Abram and the reality of Sarai's barrenness. Now, don't let that one chapter difference fool you now. It doesn't account for the time spent waiting on God to fulfill his promise. The covenant promise of a son who came when Abram was advanced in age. Abram was 86 when Ishmael was born, and the child of promise, Isaac, was not born until Abram was 100, and Sarai was 90. Okay? Family. That's a 14-year gap. All right? Anybody been waiting on God for 14 years or more? I have. Am I the only one? Okay. I see that hand. I, I see that hand. Okay. I have. Now, life in the gap, it began to wear on Sarah, right? Her patience began to dwindle. Anxiety began to rise. And fear that this promise will not come to pass it began to lay hold of her. Now, in the ancient Near East, it was customary for the wife to give her enslaved woman to her husband so that the enslaved woman can bear children for the barren wife with the result that the child of um, the child or children would actually be the, ch the child of the barren woman and her husband. But ultimately, her sinful pride and belief overtook her ability to think rationally, rationally right? which in this case, rational thinking would have meant that Sarai would have stood firmly on God's promise to her and Abraham instead of defaulting to the societal customs. Now, in Sarai's pride and unbelief, she devised a simple plan to bring about God's covenant through the work of the flesh. Now, I mentioned Sarai's, Sarai's sin of pride and unbelief a moment ago because they're actually at the root of every sin that all of us commit, right? Um, this is true, right? It's true. So, uh, unbelief questions and doubts God's character and attributes. Unbelief says this, God is not good. He doesn't care about my sufferings. He doesn't hear me when I cry out to him, and he's not powerful enough to bring about the promises he has made to me in his word. Whereas pride, like we don't say that, but that's what we say in our heart, right? Um, whereas pride causes us to place trust in ourselves and to think more highly of ourselves than we should. 
In essence, pride says, I know better than God, and I'm going to go ahead and dethrone him for a minute, sit in this place just until I get what I want, and after that, then God can go ahead and be God again. Now, now this is a cool church, so I know I got some creators up in here. Where are my creators at? I'm in the number two because I co host the podcast, so I guess that, I think that makes me a creator, all right? Okay. And so, y'all know it's feast or famine out here. Is that, am I telling you, tell me when I fly, okay? So, <laughs> there's bills to pay. Sally Mae and her cousin Nadine are counting us, all right? We got rent to pay, we gotta eat. I'll be, I was like, I gotta eat three times. I'd be mad at myself. Like, I'm hungry again. So, there, but, so when you're in that crunch, like when you're in the gap, there is this temptation to run after any and every gig that comes our way, even though we know that it's not in line with our purpose, it's not in line with our mission, but the bills are hailing us. And we're desperate. Let's be honest about that. Um, so every door, you have to remember that every door that opens for us ain't meant for us to walk through. We have to be discerning. All right? So that's just a free extra point there. All right. And so now what about some other people? Other people up in here dating the wrong people. Dating people that God said, you know good and well, they ain't no believer. They're not drawing you closer to me. But they're cute. They're attractive. Y'all got some, some commonality, you know. One thing leads to another, now you're in between the sheets, sinning against God and sinning against yourself. Holiness is still right, amen? Amen, amen like walls. Oh, I got some amens. Okay, that's good. That's good. Like Abram and Sarai, when we do things in haste and in our own strength, we find ourselves surrounded by compromises instead of God's promises. God's grace is sufficient, but the consequences of our sin often remain. Sin is irrational. Now let's talk about Abram's sin, okay? Abram's sin was passivity and unbelief. Instead of challenging Sarai, he agreed to join in on this sinful plan and failed to believe God when he told Abram that he would give him a son and many descendants. Now the ESV translation of verse 2 says this, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. His sinful passivity is exactly what his and our first father, Adam, did in Genesis 3.6. In that chapter, God curses Adam, saying, and I'm reading here from Genesis 3.17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the fruit of the tree. Right? End quote. So now, even though God commanded them not to eat of the fruit of the tree, right, of the knowledge of good and evil, this is Adam and Eve I'm talking about now, do you see how Adam and Abram's sin are the same? Abram should have called Sarai into faithful obedience to God's promises, but instead, he followed her and walked in disobedience. He went along with um, Sarai's sinful plan, just as Adam did with Eve in Genesis 3, 6. Now, let me add a caveat here, because I can hear some people out there, not here, not here, but people out there in the live stream, never here, nobody here, all right? And hear somebody saying, see, this is why we shouldn't listen to our wives. This is why we shouldn't listen to women, for that matter. Uh-oh, wait a minute. No, 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 okay? That is a misogynistic and sexist conclusion. That's not, that's not where we're supposed to land, okay? Remember that scripture interprets scripture, all right? Ephesians 5.21 says this, we are, we, all of us collectively, are to submit one to another out of reverence for Christ, okay? Mutuality, y'all. Embrace it, love it, and live into it, all right? The sin 
was not in the listening, okay, for Adam and Abel. That wasn't the sin. The sin was in the doing, which is a warning for us all. We do not obey the plans, the plots, the schemes and ideas, right, of our spouses, boo-thangs, homies, mama and them. If those plans or ideas go against God's commands, his word and express promises to us, all right, they are to be rejected. Sin is irrational. So now, 14 years, it is a long time to wait on God. The struggle is real in the gap. But I don't care how long you've been waiting on God. you got to hang in there. Don't give up. Don't give in. Keep praying. Keep praying. Keep waiting. Okay? Because God is not a liar. It is impossible for him to lie. So if he made a promise to you, if, if he made a promise to you, you better believe that it will come to pass. Resist the irrationality of sin. Alright? Point number two. Sin has communal impact. I'm going to read verses three to six. Sin has communal impact. So, after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, um, his wife, took her Egyptian slave helper and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with her and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I have suffered. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Okay, so we're going to slow down here and take it verse by verse because there is a lot to unpack here. It is crucial that we examine the interiority of Hagar's life and her lived experience as a slave, okay? So we always want to pay close attention to the most marginalized person in the text, all right? So verse 3 says, So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai's wife took her Egyptian slaves, Hagar, Hagar, gave her to her husband to be his wife. So look at Sarai's desperation. She is, she has committed the same sin that Eve was guilty of in the Garden of Eden. When the woman, and I'm going to read here from Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So like Eve, Sarai saw Hagar, took Hagar, right? And she gave Hagar to Abel. Sarai objectified Hagar. She exploited Hagar. She used her, abused her, and forced her to marry Abel. There is an entire sermon that can be preached on the ways that women are complicit in the oppression of other women. Turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor, check your complicity. All right. Sin has communal impact. It is never just personal. Never just personal. Verse 4. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Oh, goodness. All right, so I'm going to park here for a minute because this is a very important point that is often missed in the text. Now, it must be said that this was not a consensual sexual act. It was rape because Hagar was a slave. This is what I mean by examining the interiority, right, of Hagar's life. The power dynamics must be accounted for. Her agency was restricted, and she could not consent to sex because of her status as a slave, which was changed to wife via forced marriage. 
And yes, rape can and does occur within the covenant of marriage. Since the reality of Hagar's rape left off the verse, allow me to talk about rape culture for a moment because it's as old as time, okay? Rape culture normalizes sexual abuse, violence, assault, sexual harassment, either implicitly or explicitly. It is rightly called rape culture because we are all socialized into it at an early age. Rape culture is what causes people to ignore, dismiss, and trivialize claims of sexual assault. Rape culture ensures the survivor is not believed and it impacts women and men. Although women are disproportionately impacted. Now, rape culture exists in workplaces, churches, and schools, and survivors are blamed, often blamed, for the sexual assault committed against them. Sin has communal impact, y'all. It's never just personal. Hagar cries, me too, and church too. Not only Hagar, but Jesus too. The Lord Jesus Christ who covenanted himself to us, okay? Those who believe in a solidaric bond, right? Through our union with Christ, we are united to Christ in blessings and in sufferings. We don't like that part. I don't like that part, but it's just true. Which means that Jesus also cried me too. Now, I'm indebted to my dear friend and co-host of Truth Table, uh, Dr. Christina Edmondson, for this insight. Um, in her devotional post entitled, Jesus Too for Me Too, in the Truth Table, the King is Coming Advent Devotional, uh, Dr. Edmondson writes this, and I'm quoting here. Jesus knows what it means to have his clothes ripped from his body. Jesus knows what it means to have his naked, bruised, and vulnerable body, vulnerable body on display. Jesus knows what it means to have folks run from and ignore his suffering at the cross, at the cross. Jesus knows what it means to have people completely deny his experience. Jesus knows what it means to die a cruel death and to rely on the help of others to remove his exposed, lifeless body. End quote. So brothers and sisters, at the cross, Jesus cried, me too, as his naked body was fully exposed, as he was experiencing his own me too moment. He nailed me too to the cross along with all its guilt and shame. He interceded for us on that cross and he is still interceding for us now. According to Hebrews 7, 25 and 1 John 2, 1 talks about Christ being our advocate, the Father. Aren't you glad that we worship a praying God? I need all the prayers I can get, okay? Uh, Jesus prays for us, and he prays perfectly, right? He don't need no Holy Ghost editor like me. But praise God for the Holy Ghost editor, okay? So, okay, so people, now, now I do want to say this, because I know people get uncomfortable, right? When you expose the, the egregious sins of the patriarchs and the matriarchs. I know, we get uncomfortable, like, Abraham, great day, Yes, she did. David raped Bathsheba. Yeah, yeah, you did. But we don't need to absolve them by covering their sins, okay? God did that through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. The matriarchs and the patriarchs were saved by faith and in hope of the one to come, Jesus Christ, okay? So we must see them in the fullness of their humanity, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all right? So that we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the grace of God and forgiveness given to them is extended to us. All right, because we're bagging it too. All right, we're bagging Sin is ugly, but grace is scandalous, okay? We are not more gracious than God. We can tell the truth about sin, okay? Grace covers, grace covers. So does the blood. We thank God for the blood. Verses five and six. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. 
I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai was treated Hagar so that she fled from her. The irrationality of sin and its communal impact has reached new levels, y'all, in its own full display in these verses. Now that Hagar is pregnant and in her anger, Sarai blamed Abram for the outcome, although she came up with the idea. Sarai got the very thing that she wanted, but she did not consider the, in way, the way that the sinful plan would complicate their household dynamics. This is what sin does. It overpromises, underdelivers every single time. Again, we see Abram's sin of passivity rear, rear its ugly head yet again. Not only that, he completely abdicates his responsibility and leaves Hagar in the merciless grips of Sarai. Now, Renita J. Williams says this in her journal article, do you see what I see? Diversity in interpretation. And I'm quoting here. We know only too well the kinds of violence the Egyptian woman must have been forced to endure. Beatings, verbal insults, ridicule, strenuous work, degrading tasks, and the like. For to be under the power of a resentful woman can be a dangerous thing. End quote. The violence that Hagar endured at the hands of Sarai was too much for her to bear. So she fled, but doing so put her and her unborn child at risk of death. Sin has communal impact. It is never just personal. Point number three, the final point, my favorite point. Jesus is our Juneteenth. Praise God. Okay, I'm going to read verses 7 through 16. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery and he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well called Bir Lahai Roi is still there between Kadesh and Barad. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. All right. So, verses 7 and 8, Angel of the Lord found Hagar near the spring. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar said to Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai said. Now, the angel of the Lord, see this phrase, this is the first time that the angel of the Lord appears in the Bible, right? Oftentimes, these appearances are thought to be the appearance of God in physical form. I would even say the pre-incarnate Christ, which is what theologians call the theophany. Okay? And this actually points forward to Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Not only is it amazing that the angel of the Lord appears in the Bible for the first time in this chapter and verse, but what is even more striking about this is the fact that he revealed himself to Hagar, who was not a Jew, but a Gentile. She is an Egyptian, an African woman. She is not counted as part of the covenant people. Abram received the promise to bless all nations, but he treated her like nothing. He treated her like trash. God doesn't treat us that way. We are precious in his sight. God went after Hagar because he saw her anguish and distress. This shows that God cares intimately about everything that concerns us. All of us, okay? 
And as I mentioned a moment ago, the appearance of the angel of the Lord was a picture of the shadow of the greater one to come, Jesus Christ. And we see this clearly in John 4, when Jesus had to go through Samaria, Samaria in order to go to Galilee. Not only did he not actually have to go that way, right, through Samaria, he desired to be with the Gentile woman at the well. Like Hagar, she was a woman who was exploited due to the culture of the ancient world. Just as the angel of the Lord came for Hagar in the desert, so Christ brings Genesis 16, 1 through 16, to his complete fulfillment when he met with the woman at the well and showed her her desperate need for him. Jesus is our Juneteenth. In verse 8, uh, he, he says, Hagar said to Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she said. Now something striking occurs here. Micah Edmondson uh, brought out this in insight, and I'm going to quote him here. It's significant that the Lord begins by calling Hagar by name. Did you notice that Abram and Sarai never referred to Hagar by name? They only referred, referred to her by her function. Her as my servant, her as my slave, right? To them, she's just the help. Someone in the background of their lives uh, that can be used for whatever, end quote. God honors Hagar by asking her a question that he already knows the answer to. But he listened to her, share her experience. He didn't gaslight her. He didn't dismiss her words. God listened to Hagar. Turn to your other neighbor and say, neighbor, neighbor. listen to women. <laughs> All right. Verses 9 through 12. <laughs> then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Uh-oh, it's a plot twist. All right. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. All right, y'all, be honest. Verse 9 takes me out, okay? Every time I read it, I'm like, Lord, why? Why would you send Hagar back to the place of oppression, bondage, and, um, um, and torment? I just, I don't understand. You're the God of justice, deliverance, and liberation that belongs to you. That's who you are. I, I don't understand this. So I needed some help, okay? So according to Dolores S. Williams, in her book, Sisters in the Wilderness, um, she says that by sending Hagar back to Abram um, and Sarai, God has given her a survival strategy, okay? I'm going to quote her here. She says, God apparently wants Hagar to secure her and her child's well-being by using the resources Abram has to offer. End quote. Now, Hagar, Hagar could not do this in the desert, y'all. She just couldn't. God works through means. Now, as I wrestled with this verse, in particular, in light of where we have come from as a people, what we have been through and where we are now, it became clear to me that Hagar stands as a representative for our people in that she was given a liberating promise, right, of a child, Ishmael, in verses 11 and 12, whom an entire nation would come from, which is also promised in Genesis 21, 18, thus securing her future. Hagar was sent back to live in the gap. The gap between her present reality of torment and the promise of nation building that would come from her son. 14 years is how long Hagar waited in the gap according to Genesis 21. In that chapter, God visited her again after being kicked out of the house and into the desert by Sarah and Abraham. It's cutting up, y'all. The desert that was a site of impending death in chapter 16 became a site of liberation for Hagar. 
Only God can do that. Jesus is our Juneteenth. Like Hagar, our ancestors received the message of Juneteenth in the throes of enslavement. And that message came in the gap, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. And even after learning of their freedom, it was contested via violent oppression, right? Yet many of them held fast to their hope in Jesus Christ, who is our Juneteenth. The ultimate promise of salvation that can't be stripped away by racist campaigns of violence because salvation belongs to God alone. Unlike our Egyptian matriarch Hagar, who was saved in hope of the one to come, we and our enslaved, uh, enslaved ancestors have the vantage point of the cross of Jesus, right? The promise of salvation breaks the chains of sin in our lives. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present evil age, according to Titus 2, verse 12. Jesus is our Juneteenth. Now, although at that moment that we confess sin and turn to Christ for salvation, we're, we are saved to the uttermost, but Jesus does not take us out of this world to be with him in heaven. I wish he would, but he, just, he doesn't do that. Uh, just as Hagar had to return to the house of bondage for a time, Jesus leaves us here to contend with the forces allied against us. He gives us survival strategies, as Dolores Williams said regarding Hagar, and it's given to us through the gospel and the word of God. We live in this present evil age, and as a result, we live in the tension, okay? The tension of the already and not yet. Meaning that Christ's kingdom has been inaugurated due to Christ's advent and finished work on the cross. But the full manifestation of the kingdom of God hasn't come yet, and it will not come in its fullness until Christ returns. He is coming for those who are waiting for him. However, since the kingdom of God has broken into the present evil age, we are to seek justice correct oppression, expose evil, right? By bringing those evil deeds of darkness into the, the light, right? The purifying light of Christ, so that justice is served, which points forward to the perfect justice that will reign when Christ returns and executes his perfect justice. Jesus is our Juneteenth, y'all. 13, verses 13 to 16, and I'm out your way. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of sin. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roai. It lies between Kadesh and Barak. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had borne him. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Now Hagar called the Lord a God of seeing because she now sees the one who sees her. God is so merciful, gracious, and compassionate that he gave Hagar the exclusive honor of naming God. She is the only person in the Bible that has actually done that, y'all. What a beautiful display of the, of the restoration of Hagar's agency, right? And God's deep love and intimate care for her. Not only that, in verse 14, Hagar names the, 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 uh, the, the well is called Bir Lahai which means the well of the living one who sees me. So brothers and sisters, do you know that God sees you too? Yeah. I don't know about y'all, but a God who saw me in the past but can't see me now is not God. A God who heard me in the past, but can't hear me now, is not God. Especially as people who are living in the gap, we are people who are living in the gap. Which is the tension, right, of oppression and light of liberation. We need a God who is seeing and hearing us now. Oh, but we can rejoice today. Because we worship the one true God who saw us and sees us. The God who heard us, alright, and hears us now. The God who told us in John 8, 36, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. 
set free from the bondage of sin if you turn to Jesus Christ by faith. Today, if you hear the voice of God, harden not your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus is our Juneteenth. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he's our Juneteenth. God, we thank you that, that you are the God of our weary years, oh Lord. You've been through us. You, you, you've been with us. You've carried us from a mighty long way, oh God. And we still have a long way to go, oh God. But you promised to be with us, oh God. You've given us survival strategies, Lord. And I just pray right now, Father God, for those who are living in the gap, for the children who know you, oh God, but are struggling. Um, as they wait, oh Lord, and they're tempted to do things in their own strength. Would you strengthen them by the power of the Holy Spirit? Would you help them to keep their eyes fixed on you, oh God, and to continue to put one foot in front of the other, faithfully trusting you and holding on to your unchanging hand? God, and I pray for those who are not yet your children, oh God, but they, they've heard this message now, oh God, and their eyes are now being opened and illumined to the beauty of your gospel. Oh, God, I pray that you will save them now, oh, Lord, that you save to the uttermost, oh, God. I thank you that this is the day that you have declared Juneteenth to them, oh, Lord. Freedom from the shackles of their sin, oh, Lord, so that they can live as children of the light, oh, God. I pray, Father God, that you will get the glory in this place and in our lives, oh, Lord, God. We pray this all in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you.